This is Reconsidering, the podcast about life and finding ways to make it more satisfying. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. It's no secret that many of us feel pushed to the limit, rushed, overwhelmed, and perennially behind. We keep our heads down, focused on an endless to-do list without a moment to breathe. How can we break out of this vicious cycle of short-term thinking and create the kind of interesting, meaningful lives that we all seek? Dory Clark has a few answers for us. She's a Duke University professor and the author of The Long Game. She wants to help us reorient ourselves towards big picture thinking that will help us make small changes today that have enormous impact on our future success. Join Bob Baxley, Meredith Black, and me, Aaron Walter, for a conversation with Dory Clark. My name is Dory Clark, and I teach for the business schools at Duke and Columbia, and I write business and career books. Uh, the most recent is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And I try to help people get their message heard in an increasingly crowded and noisy marketplace. So Dory, we uh, start the show with what we call the lightning round. You ready to play? Oh my gosh, bring it. Okay, here we go. Paper or plastic? Paper. Library or coffee shop? Coffee shop. Night on the town or quiet night at home? Night on the town. Red-eye flight or overnight train? Red-eye flight. Scripted or improv? Improv. Calendar or to-do list? To-do list. In-person or remote? In-person. John Gardner or Tony Robbins? Uh, Tony Robbins. Eleanor Roosevelt or Nancy Pelosi? Eleanor Roosevelt. LBJ or FDR? FDR. Martin Luther King or Malcolm X? MLK. Beauty or wisdom? Wisdom. Poetry or prose? Uh, poetry. Nice. Well, you put the lightning in lightning round. <laughs> so, I'm trying. Yeah. I, I was yeah. I was scared. I can offer commentary, but I, I didn't I didn't want to mess with the mojo here. Well, let's start from the top. Uh, we enjoyed your book, The Long Game, and it's certainly something that the three of us think about individually, taking a long term view of our our lives and our careers and so forth. And we want to dive into all the details that you talk about in your book. But maybe we could just start by why is long-term thinking so hard for human beings? But why is it so critical to our success? Well, long-term thinking is hard at a really basic level because we're human beings. And for any rational human, if you have a choice between something now and something at an indeterminate point in the future where it might not actually happen you would want the thing now. That only makes sense. But the challenge, of course, is that for many of the things in our modern society that we want, for many of the things that are most good or most meaningful, there's no way, there's just literally no way that it will happen immediately. And so we have to be long-term thinkers if we want to achieve those things. And so in many ways, it's a question of overwriting the innate wiring that we have toward short-term gratification and understanding that if we are 
responsible about making small moves in the short term, eventually we will actually get to where we want to go. But it requires a certain level of consistency and sometimes a certain level of resiliency. You mentioned the word wiring, which I think is really appropriate when we're talking about this. We keep our heads down, focused on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and we're constantly in execution mode. Why do you feel that we have to function this way? And is there a way that we can break the cycle? Well, it's easy for all of us to get trapped in ruts. You know, sometimes we even forget what life was like before if we have been doing something long enough. I think many of us probably felt that rather acutely around COVID, where all of a sudden our routines were profoundly disrupted and we didn't like it. We didn't want it to necessarily be that way. And yet now, as we're, you know, hopefully, hopefully easing out of some of these restrictions, we actually find ourselves stuck in some of the same patterns that we were decrying before because we're, we've gotten used to it. So I think that we really need to approach these things as conscious choices because whether we're being conscious or not, we are choosing and we need to recognize the power that we have to shape our lives and to shape our futures. And, you know, there are certain things, of course, that are outside of our control. During the pandemic, you just had to suck things up. If you had school-age kids and all of a sudden the schools are closed, well, there's not too much you can do with that. You have to deal with the cards you're dealt. But the issue is that now, as we are in a place where we're beginning to recalibrate who we are and what our society is like, what we want our society to be like, we do have the opportunity to make more conscious choices. And this is the moment where I think we really should be exercising that. We should be thoughtful and we should be asking ourselves important questions because we have more opportunity and more agency now than we have in a long time to really be able to reset what our lives look like. There was a part in the book that really resonated with me a number of parts, but one in particular, creating white space in your calendar, which can seem kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people to intentionally have blank spaces in our calendar. And you even point this out that there's almost like a status benefit of like looking busy. If you can report to other people, I'm so busy, I've got all these flights, you know, I'm going on all these trips, I'm doing all this business. It seems like you're successful, but in reality, a lot of people just get stuck. They get stuck in a rut or they're just like, they're the dog that caught the car. You know, like I just wanted to be important and I wanted to be successful. And then you got everything you wanted and you're miserable. This idea of like designing your life through your calendar is fascinating because it changes your days. It changes your weeks. It changes your years ultimately can change your life. So could you talk to us a little bit about why white space in our calendar is important? And actually, how do we do that? Yeah, these are very critical questions. So the first reason why I think white space is important, there's a couple of things at play. The first is that if we look at it rationally for anything more than like 30 seconds, we will intuitively know that emergencies or, you know, I'll at least say emergency in an air quote, crop up all the time. There's a client that really needs to talk to you or the water heater breaks or, you know, something that happens. And if we do not have slack in our calendars built in, 
we are going to negatively impact an entire cascade. If there's no slack in the system, I mean, this is like how traffic jams get started. You know, if you have a certain level of density and there's a little bit of a problem, maybe there's a fender bender, it's okay. The system can adapt. It's not a huge deal. But if there is no margin and if people are just bumper to bumper and all of a sudden there's a fender bender, pretty much you've got this three hour long traffic jam that goes for 15 miles. You are in a bad place. So having some slack built into your calendar to account for inevitable emergencies. We don't know what they are, but we know that they will arise. This is very important from a systems perspective. The second reason is that for many white collar professionals, you know, of course there are some people that don't like their job, that are not happy at their job, but I would say that there's a far greater percentage of people that actually do like the vast majority of what they do, but they are miserable because they have to do too much of it. You can't enjoy anything if there's too much of it. It's like, oh, you like peanut butter? Good. Eat this whole can. Now eat another. <laughs> You're not going to like peanut butter very long. <laughs> so I think we could all dramatically maximize our enjoyment of our lives and our professional careers just by having that much more slack in it so that we're not constantly in a state where we're like having to strategize about how and where we can use the bathroom. So, you know, it's like a low hanging fruit to make your life a lot easier and better is if you're just doing slightly less, your enjoyment will increase exponentially. But above and beyond that, you know, sort of the biggest premise of why we need more white space is that largely speaking, long-term thinking becomes almost structurally impossible when there is no margin in your calendar. You just, you can't get there. It's not like you need an enormous amount of time for strategic thinking, but you need some time. And if there is literally no time, if you are constantly operating at a time deficit, you're never going to get to that place, which becomes problematic over time. It's really interesting what you just said completely hit home to me. Last week, I had eight one-on-one -on -one interviews and like three and a half hours or something like that. And like, I honestly couldn't even remember what I had said from one person to the other because it was just like, end a Zoom call, start a new one. End a Zoom call, start a new one. My question to you is, yes, looking at a calendar is like a great approach in terms of kind of portioning out or sectioning out your day. But like, I also think that if you have a half hour on, a half hour off, a half hour on, a half hour off, that also can be incredibly distracting, right? Because it's fragmented. I don't know if you talked about this in previous books or if you talk about this with some of the folks that you coach, but do you have recommendations in terms of how people should kind of section out their time during the day or the week to make it more productive? Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Meredith. I had a feeling you would. <laughs> I, I aim to please. <laughs> so, yes, you're exactly right. I'm certainly a big fan of leaving, you know, as you say, a little bit of margin. You know, it could be a half an hour. It could even just be 15 minutes. But having something between calendar listings so that at a minimum, you can take a break if you need a break. You can get water if you need water so that you can actually write down your action items so you don't forget what they are. You know, that's important. But you're also correct that it's a lot of running around. It's a lot of fragmentation. There's going to be busy times, inevitably. A book launch, for instance, is one of them where it's not incredibly possible. But during 
normal times, which, you know, the majority of things should be normal times. I prefer personally, and I think this might be helpful for other people, to have a kind of alternating schedule, which is inspired by Paul Graham and his concepts around manager time and maker time. And the way that I play this out for myself, because if, especially if you are an entrepreneur or a solopreneur, you really are both. You are both the manager and the maker. So you need to schedule your calendar accordingly. So what I will often do is have alternating manager days and maker days. So on a manager day, it's just a bunch of phone calls. That's kind of what it is. It's meetings with clients, it's podcasts, it's you know whatever you need to do where you're talking to people and coordinating. But then what that allows, because you have the busy back-to-back stuff, is the next day is like kind of a, an open day. Now, it's, it's not a free day in the sense that you're not working. You know, typically you'd be working unless you had an alternative plan, but it would be unstructured time that enables you to go deep and actually accomplish something that you couldn't do if you only had 15 minutes or 30 minutes between calls. So maybe it's like actually finishing that report or actually doing the research that you need to determine if X, Y, and Z is a good plan that you need to be doing or not doing or, or whatever it is but it enables you to to do a more strategic deep dive into meaningful activities and projects. Is that essentially what you talk about in the book with the heads up, heads down philosophy? Yeah, you are precisely right. So heads up, heads down mode is something that I first heard that particular formulation from my friend Jared Kleinert, who is somebody that I profiled in a previous book of mine called Entrepreneurial You. And he was talking about it in the context of the uh, typical entrepreneurial ailment of shiny object syndrome, where you constantly keep getting distracted by a new thing and, you know, oh, maybe I should do that. Oh, maybe I should do that. And you never end up getting anything done because you're constantly sort of switching into a new thing. And the point that he made, which I think is apt, is that you need to have both heads up and heads down mode because heads up mode, when you're, you know, sort of looking around, you're more social, you're more engaged, you're, you know, checking out options. That's fantastic. You need that, of course, to get inspiration or to figure out what you want to do. But at a certain point, you just have to call it, you know, because it's better to make progress on something that's good enough rather than waiting your whole life for the perfect thing and then you never make progress on anything. So you need to be smart enough to eventually switch into heads down mode where you're doing execution, you're you're making something happen. And so I typically think of that as being a kind of slightly longer term process because writing a book, for instance, you need to be heads up long enough to get inspired, to figure out what you want to write your book about, to you know make a decision. But then the actual act of writing it is a somewhat solitary heads down execution task. So that might be played out over a period of months or a period of years, but you're exactly right. It's almost like chaos theory, right? In the micro, it can apply to your week that you want to have heads up manager time and heads down maker time. Yeah, it sounds like in the book, when you're talking about heads up, heads down, you're really talking in terms of maybe months, maybe not even weeks. It's sort of a period of, oh, this is a six month or you know a 12 month exercise. I'm going to go heads down. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Hence the long game. You got it. <laughs> well, well, what does long mean? Like long in geological time or long as like at this point in your life, can you actively think in terms of decades or what's your default time frame when you think in terms of long term? Yeah. Well, you raise an interesting point. I'm 
going to be speaking. I'm, I'm still working at the timing, but I'm going to be speaking for the Long Now Foundation. They're really into the long game. It's a very uh, long game. Yeah, they're they're all about like millennia and how do we resurrect woolly mammoths and things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, that is a slightly longer horizon than my book, which is about your career, which unless and until we figure out the whole cryogenic situation probably is not going to last millennia, <laughs> but instead decades. <laughs> but to your point, I mean, it is it is an interesting question. How do we define the long game? What is it? I would say, broadly speaking, that I think most of us should be thinking in terms of decades. I mean, the truth is, this is a professionally focused book, but not exclusively. It really is a book, I think, about how to think about structuring our lives. And even if you're in your 60s, if you're in your 70s, if we look at actuarial tables, most people who are in that age range actually do, in fact, have decades more to plan. They might not think about that, or they might not feel that way. Like, oh, I'm going to retire. I mean, I'll be done. But you know what? People get bored. That's the whole, that's the whole thing in retirement is where, you know, people often suffer because they have not adequately thought about what they are going to be doing after their official paid employment ends. And it can lead to a lot of stress and a lot of depression. You know, I I think it's entirely appropriate if you're 70 years old. Yes, you should be thinking in decades because, you know, are you going to be around for decades? Maybe or maybe not, but there's a, a statistically significant chance you will. So let's get smart and plan for that. Because if you're getting into your 90s, I want them to be great. So yes, I think thinking in decades is definitely the way to go. But broadly speaking, the way that I think about, you know, what is long-term, my kind of quick rule of thumb is that long-term thinking in a lot of ways is really just asking ourselves, what is it I can do today that makes tomorrow better or easier? Is there a thing that I can do today that is giving future me a favor? That's what I think is kind of a valuable frame. I mean, it, it could literally be something as simple as tomorrow, right? It makes it more likely tomorrow that I will work out if I leave my exercise clothes out on the dresser the night before. Tomorrow might not seem like the long game, but the truth is the act of exercising on a regular basis actually is a key part of playing the long game and is part of the long-term goals for health and resiliency and, and vitality. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can peel back the layers of the onion. You talk about 20% time projects, which are a good example of what you're describing, of doing something today to help you for tomorrow. And 20% time, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, Google popularized this idea of spending 20% of your time at work on a passion project of some sort. The truth was that for many people at Google, it ended up being 120% of their time. It's like, do 100% of your job and 20% more on a passion project. But it leads to unexpected things. Can you talk to us a little bit about that 20% thinking, how you've folded that into your life or how you've seen other people fold that into their life to create opportunities for themselves in the future? Yeah, absolutely. One of the topics that I get asked to speak about a lot by corporations is about career paths because it's very interesting, but you know, ultimately this sort of pre-designed career pathway that I think is kind of in people's heads as a platonic ideal from, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, that's not really a thing anymore. It's not like in most companies, there is a very clear pathway 
from this to this to this, and then you rise up the ladder. Companies are not mapping that for you anymore. You sort of have to map that for yourself. And this becomes a very good thing for people who are ambitious and proactive, and it becomes a very bad thing for people who are expecting to be handed something or to be told what to do, because no one is paying that close attention. No one is going to tell you what to do. So whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but it is. And so I want people to be as equipped as possible for the reality that we live in. And I think that given that, given that life can change on a dime, as we all saw with the pandemic, given that industries can change and collapse, one of the best things that we can do for ourselves, if we truly want to create career insurance for ourselves, is that we need to be proactive about understanding, okay, I need to be in charge of my professional development. I need to keep moving the ball forward. And I might as well do that with things that are interesting to me. <laughs> because if I'm choosing, why wouldn't I? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's the benefit of you choosing, right? And so because we often have been kind of trained to sort of look for permission, sometimes people don't necessarily even realize that this is possible, but it is. And it's not only possible, it's desirable. And I really want to try to normalize the concept that we all on an ongoing and active basis should be scouting for opportunities to be learning new things and deploying our skills such that we are building up knowledge and experience in areas that are outside of or adjacent to what we're doing now. Because it's just like any stock portfolio. If you get overweight in certain sectors, you are great. You're in great shape as long as those sectors are doing well. And then you are in a very dangerous and dire position if those sectors have a downturn. We want to hedge the bets. We want to de-risk the portfolio by having you invest a portion of your time and a portion of your energy and your network in something that is different, because that can become a way to capture upside if things are going well, and it can be a way to protect yourself from the downside if the main thing that you're doing for some reason has a reversal of fortune. It's also challenging too, right? Like in a good way, it mentally challenges you to get outside of your comfort zone a little bit. Like you said, I think people do think that there always needs to be this career path or this career trajectory. And Aaron, Bob, and I can attest to the fact that that is not <laughs> how it happens and, and yeah. or it has happened in any of our careers, right? And I think what you get to is very similar to what Bill Burnett said in Designing Your Life, who we interviewed as well for this podcast, was wouldn't it be boring if you knew what your job was going to be like six or seven years from now? Like it'd be too predictable. And I think you, Dory, just kind of re-emphasizing that is important for our listeners to hear is that there is no roadmap and that's okay. And you need to be okay with that. But yes, you should be proactive in what you're doing and you should try new things. It might not guarantee you know, the best bet, but at least you're doing something that could expand that skill set. Totally. So I'm really curious. I read it in your book and it just really resonated with me. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about it now about the hell yeah or no philosophy. Yes. So there is an entrepreneur and an author named Derek Sivers who has popularized this concept. And I think it's very helpful because we often get trapped by what I will call middling opportunities, right? Like most people are smart enough 
that if you have a fantastic offer, you're going to say yes really quickly. And also most people are smart enough that if there is a truly terrible offer, you know, oh, hey, will you help me move, you know, my Siberian panther for free? <laughs> you know, like, like, no, no, that doesn't sound like a good idea at all. You will say no. But the problem comes that so many of us, we have FOMO, we worry that we're going to miss out on a really good opportunity. The information is ambiguous and we don't know how to evaluate it properly. And so you get a lot of things that I will call a middling opportunity. Well, they're not paying me, but it could be good exposure. Or, well, I'm not really interested in classical music, but I haven't seen my friend in a while and she invited me or, you know, like whatever it is. And so if we were putting this on some kind of a scale, it would be like let's call it a five to a seven, <laughs> something like that. And it's like, well, you know, you could do it. You might not do it. But oftentimes we find ourselves saying yes to that. And this, Derek Sivers believes, and I, I think there's a lot of wisdom to what he's saying, this is where we get into trouble. Because if we fill up our lives and if we fill up our schedules with all of the marginal opportunities, then again, if, if we go back to thinking about white space, there's literally just not room for the good stuff. It doesn't fit. And so we need to get a little smarter and a little sharper about what we say yes to so that we can leave room for good and better things. So the hell yeah or no test is basically, unless you are incredibly enthusiastic about this offer, you know, let's call it a nine or a 10 on the scale of one to 10, then we should say no as our default. So let me follow up with the question that I think women in general have a hard time saying no. How do you think this comes into play with the hell yeah or hell no? Do you think women have a harder time? I think women have a harder time saying no. How can you pivot that mindset, right? Like I know from a nine or a 10, yeah, that sounds great. But like in reality, how do you actually say no? How do you actually say I'm overcommitted? I've got too much work to do. I'm a mom. I've got to teach my kids at mm -hmm. home and babysit them all at the same time of doing my job without looking or feeling bad, because I think that's like inherently maybe a female thing is you feel guilty for saying no. For the record, I do as well. Okay, great. So all genders, but how do you address that? Yeah. So one tip or one sort of low hanging fruit is if you are going to say no, say no quickly, because a problem that we get into is we compound the problem because we feel bad saying no, therefore we procrastinate saying no, therefore like three weeks have passed and you not only are gonna say no, you're gonna look like a jerk because you waited three weeks to tell them the thing. And by that point, you often feel so guilty about the procrastination that you say yes anyway, which ultimately defeats the entire purpose of this. So better to rip off the Band-Aid if you're going to say no and just do it quickly. But what you're saying, Meredith, you're hitting on something important. You're like, you want to be helpful. You want to feel helpful. So a sort of reframe that I have is, okay, how can you be helpful? But you don't necessarily have to accept the frame that the other person has for that. So there are often default requests in our culture that people have. And sometimes it's because they precisely want this thing, but more often than not, it's just because this is what we're trained to ask for and people don't put a lot of thought into it. Oh, hey, can we grab a cup of coffee? Oh, hey, can I pick your brain? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and then they just ask these things and they might 
request an hour or half an hour of your time for something that literally takes like two seconds. Like people are enormously bad judges when it comes to the value of other people's time and what actually is necessary. We think they think about this. They don't. And so we have to do the thinking for them. So what I would say is number one, if the request is nonspecific, it is super, super important for you to protect your own time by getting clear on precisely what the request is first. If someone ever says to you, hey, Meredith, can I just like grab 30 minutes on your calendar? Like you might assume, oh, they must have a really good reason. No, they probably don't. So you should just ask them, well, oh, I'd be glad to help if I can. What did you want to talk about? This is the most important question. And then that way you can evaluate, is it worth a phone call? Is it an emergency if it warrants a phone call? Or maybe, you know, they ask you something like completely ridiculous. Oh, well, I wanted to talk to you about blah, blah, blah. And then you realize, like, I literally don't know anything about that topic. Like, <laughs> this is going to be a waste of both of our time. And so instead, you can head them off at the pass. You can refer them to someone else. You can, you know, guide them in some way. But there's a lot of ways to be helpful. You could give them book recommendations, article recommendations. You could connect them to somebody else appropriate. But it doesn't necessarily have to mean a half an hour on the phone with you. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. I'm going to try to braid together a couple of different threads we got going here. So at the top of the interview, you had this interesting point about how long-term thinking actually runs counter to human nature. Like uh, Mother Nature did not prepare us to think about what's going to happen a decade from now. So that's sort of one thread. And then you had this other comment about how we're conditioned for permission, right? And I'm wondering now, it's just feels like we're on this topic where it's so hard for us to vote for ourselves because like no seems to be the wrong thing to start with you know in your experience is that a generational thing is that a, a western cultural thing is it a gender thing like why is it so hard for us to put on our own mask before helping others how come we won't prioritize our own needs yeah well i think you know there's there's a lot of factors at play as you might imagine part of it actually is because we train ourselves. I mean, society trains us, of course, right? To Meredith's point, you know, women especially, but everybody, it's like, it's a value to be helpful. You want to be collaborative and conciliatory and things like that. That's good. But also the truth is saying yes is the right answer when you're at the beginning of your career, but it's the wrong answer later on. And no one actually explicitly tells you that, that you have to 
learn how to adjust that. And over time in your career, you need to incrementally keep tightening your criteria. I mean, when it's your first job, you're 22, there's no one queuing for your time. You know, if somebody's like, hey, do you want to come to the blah, blah, blah? You know, yes is the right answer because you get to meet people. That's good. You don't know people. You get to learn about things. Great. You don't know about things. (laughs) You know, eventually you will meet enough people and eventually you will learn enough to determine what you like and what you don't like and what you're good at and what you're not good at. But in the beginning, you're kind of a blank slate. So yes, learn by saying yes. But this is catastrophic advice if you're 40, because by then you do know people and you do know things and you are going to have way too many people coming at you. And it's very easy to fall into reactive mode where all you're doing is just responding to those people. But that means you're enacting their agenda, not your agenda. And odds are those things are not really going to overlap precisely and you may not end up accomplishing what you most want to accomplish. That's the issue is that we get habituated to saying yes and having that be the right move, but we need to change our own tactics over time. Can we talk about etiquette when we do this? Because I think that's so important and I think it's probably different in different cultures and different parts of the world. But like we said, it's hard to say no, or what you just mentioned is, oh, you can pass them off to somebody else. But I always feel like I have to reach out, tell that person, hey, do you mind if I introduce so-and-so to you? Because I feel like they might be a better fit to talk to you. That also takes time, right? What are some rules of or points maybe of etiquette that you could share with us that maybe we can kind of use as a forcing function while we're on this journey? Yeah, this is such an important point. So of course, you're exactly right. I mean, you don't want to be the person who is causing problems for your friends by just, you know, fobbing the crazies off on them. That would be a bad move. So ultimately, it is important to have a kind of double opt-in introduction. Now, this is not 100% of the time. I mean, if you know for sure that your friend would want to meet this person, if they've told you previously, oh, I'd really like to connect with more mid-market CEOs, and the person is a mid-market CEO, you know, you can probably feel relatively safe just going ahead and doing it. But most of the time you are correct that you would want to be judicious with getting the double opt-in. So it does take time. I think it depends, you know, we have to be making these kinds of triaging decisions in our mind about the level of connection to the person and what they are owed. This is where we get a little Machiavellian, you know, like in our ideal world, it's like, well, every person should be treated equally in terms of their requests, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is like, no, sorry, a stranger coming at you with a request, you can't and you shouldn't treat them the same as a friend coming to you with a request. You have to draw boundaries somewhere. Again, otherwise other people are going to be ruling your life and There's the the saying that your email inbox is somebody else's to-do list for you. And if you want literally anyone in the world to be able to put things on your to-do list, then fine. But mostly I think we don't. You know, I try to be nice. And so if a stranger writes in with a question, I want to be thoughtful. And so I might do something like send them an article that I wrote on the topic or send them a referral for books or, or things like that. I am probably not unless that person has like really impressed me with a thing they said or their credentials or some distinguishing thing. I'm probably not 
going to make a point of connecting them with somebody else and, and exploiting political capital in that way for a stranger, whereas I might do that if the person was a friend. I want to just go back to one topic because there's an interesting thing that you pointed out of recognizing when you've made the shift from the beginning of your career where you need to say yes a lot to the point where you're established, you've got a network, you've got opportunities coming at you, and you don't need to say yes. In fact, it's detrimental. So there's that transition. And many of us don't even know like, oh, the transition happened. My behavior should change. There's one thing that, that you mentioned in the book about optimizing for interesting or optimizing for money. It's almost about like thinking about your life and career in seasons. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that's absolutely right. A problem that I have often seen with friends or colleagues or coaching clients, you know, you'll often hear people say that they feel like they're in a rut or they feel like they're just stuck in some way. And what I often have found is that a reason why that's the case is that they have been working hard, but the problem is usually that they have been working hard continually at doing the same thing, doing the thing that they're good at doing or doing the thing that they are used to doing. And the problem is that so much of success in life is actually understanding that you can't always do the same thing. We are not assembly line workers with knowledge-based professional careers. You have to keep doing different things and the real judgment is in understanding when to shift. And so ultimately, a challenge that many people have is that they are unsure when it's time to make that shift. And so in the long game, I actually lay out what I call the philosophy of thinking in waves. And, you know, of course, these overlap a little bit. It's not uh, sort of perfectly discrete phases. But broadly speaking, I break it into four key phases. The first is what I call the learning wave, which is, you know, at the beginning of your career or at the beginning of your tenure at a job, let's say, basically, you're just soaking everything up, right? You're meeting new people, you're learning new things, you're figuring out, all right, here's how it works around here. So it's kind of a more passive, like sponge-like situation. But eventually, you need to shift into what I call the creating phase, which is where you start giving back. You now know enough that you can make a contribution. You're not just sitting there passively. You're offering ideas. You're putting your own spin on things. You're trying to contribute. And then eventually, you shift into what I call connecting mode, which is where you're branching out. You're building connections with people because no matter how good your ideas are, if no one's really listening to them or only the people like right in that room are listening to them, they're not going to go that far. So you need to build connections inside your company and inside your industry so that you can be heard and be more effective. And then finally, you get to the place where everybody wants to go, which is the reaping mode, where it's like, oh, good, you're going on all cylinders. People respect what you have to say. They like you. They take you seriously. That's great. And then too many people try to just stay there and coast but that's a problem too, because the world keeps changing and reinventing. And so at a certain point, we need to willingly disrupt ourselves and go back to begin the circle again with learning mode so that we can learn new things and add value in a new realm. So that's kind of the overview of how I think about the thinking in waves process. I struggle with this myself. You know, I've been doing the same thing for 30 some odd years and you sort of start to think, okay, well, what's the next thing? But you know, you are going to take a huge hit. You know, I'm, I'm at the top of some metaphorical mountain and going back down in the valley seems a little intimidating to say the least, you know, it has all sorts of other implications. 
And partly I have trouble kind of imagining what are other mountains I might want to climb. Have you struggled with that yourself? Or is it more sort of like a gathering type experience where you're networking and like you just identify other opportunities? Or have you encountered people who have been able to kind of say, oh, I'm doing, I'm in career X, but I've been able to significantly shift my self-image to imagine doing something fundamentally different. Have you seen many people make that kind of transition? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, my first book was called Reinventing You, and it's all about professional reinvention. So I I profiled a number of people who had made sometimes rather large shifts. But I, I think that you're pointing to something important, which is a necessary ingredient, which is not easy, is humility. Because we get used to doing things well. You know, after a while, you've worked so hard to attain proficiency in something, it becomes a habit. You're used to being great at what you do. You're used to getting the right result every time. And if you start doing something you haven't done before, you're probably going to suck for a while. And it's hard psychologically. You have to like really be like, okay, my self-esteem does not reside here. My self-esteem resides elsewhere. You know, you have to like very consciously remind yourself of that. So, I mean, I have done this personally. I started five years ago learning how to write musical theater, which I had never done that before. So I was not amazing in the beginning. And you really have to kind of humble yourself with that process. In Reinventing You, I profiled a woman named Deborah that had built up this very successful, very, you know, lucrative career in corporate HR. And she retired after, you know, 25, 30 years. And she was kind of going through this process, as you were describing, Bob, of, you know, sort of fishing around, talking to people, trying to figure out what she wanted to do. She had a few hypotheses. But eventually what she decided to do, she fell in love with this candidate who was running for governor of her state. And she decided that she would volunteer for his campaign. And, you know, at first, you know, they didn't know who this lady was. So they had her do like all the stupid things you have volunteers do. It's like, okay, Deborah, here's your list of people to make phone calls. And, you know, she's just (laughs) making the phone calls. And, you know, it's like very menial, but they needed bodies and she was glad to help. So she just, you know, she kept doing it. And, and, you know, you have to be kind of humble. You have to realize like, all right, I had this like super high powered job where they really respected my opinions and paid me a lot of money. And now I'm phone banking. Okay. (laughs) But she did it. And eventually, you know, you do get noticed. Eventually they're like, oh, wow, this person seems really competent. Wow. This person seems really reliable. And eventually they ended up hiring her on the campaign. And, you know, she'd never worked in politics before, but she eventually found herself as a regional field director on this campaign. She got this whole new kind of career after that campaign. She had met a bunch of other people, of course, working on the campaign, and she got hired to run a state rep race to be a campaign manager. I mean, it was not anything she had ever imagined, but she had managed to build up a skill set from the ground up. It's funny, when you said she fell in love with a candidate, I thought that story could go a lot of different ways. (laughs) (laughs) Not in that way. (laughs) I also think it's important to bring up a part of your book that I thought was really interesting, which was networking. Right. And I think sometimes networking can be considered kind of a dirty word, which I don't know. I don't think it always necessarily has to be that way. I think people are genuine and how they network and how they want to network. Can you tell us a little bit about your New York City dinner party philosophy? Because I think, I don't know, it really resonated with me. And I think a lot of people would like to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. So pre-COVID, as you might imagine, because these were taking place in person, although I did 
in fact, do a series of Zoom cocktail gatherings during the pandemic. But, you know, pre-COVID, I moved to New York and basically I realized pretty quickly, like, oh, I know some people, you know, but I don't really have a lot of friends. And that was this very alarming realization at a certain point. You're like, oh, wow, I'm basically alone every night. And so I knew I needed to do something about that. And so the thing that kind of echoed in my mind was, you know, from when I was like eight or whatever, my mother had this mantra, which is great. You know, so much goes back to like what you learn in Little League or what your mom tells you. And so mama liked to say, if you want to get an invitation, you have to give an invitation. And so I thought, all right, yeah, I've got to get proactive here. So I started organizing dinner gatherings. And I, you know, I I came to New York and it wasn't that I knew no one. I knew some people. I just wasn't close to them. I was, it was a very casual acquaintanceship. And so I reached out to the casual acquaintances and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to try to make them a little less casual. And so I started organizing these dinner gatherings and I eventually was able to round up some people that seemed to be like very into it. You know, they liked networking or connecting too. And so I would sometimes co-host events with people and I'd be like, all right, I'll invite half the people and you invite half the people. And so our networks would cross pollinate in that way that was really great. It was a way to dramatically fast track the number of people that I knew in New York and and my relationships with them. I mean, you know, for a lot of people, you invite them to something once and, you know, that's kind of it, right? Like they don't follow up or they don't reciprocate or whatever, but, you know, some people do and some people, you know, you hit it off with, so you want to invite them multiple times. And that becomes the seed of relationships that can actually be quite long lasting at times. In the book, you break down different types of relationships that we can create. You talk about short-term networking, long-term networking, and then something you call infinite horizon networking. Could you explain that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, pretty much everybody recognizes that short-term networking, which I define as like, I need a thing. Maybe I can get that thing from you. <laughs> That's, you know, a little off-putting, right? That's not not exactly how we want to be doing uh, networking. But, you know, many people who are good networkers, they focus on long-term networking, which is great, you know, as they should. Long-term networking is basically, eh, you know, I don't have a thing I need. I don't really know what I quote-unquote want out of this relationship. I just know you seem interesting. You seem cool. Let's get to know each other. You know, maybe something good will happen. And that's a, that's a great way to be. But I think that what often gets overlooked, even by excellent networkers, is the infinite horizon networking. And this is what I define as networking with people who seem totally irrelevant to you. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, like, like, why would you bother, right? Like, they're in a totally different part of the world, or they're in a totally different field, or they just seem like so different from you. But those are often some of the most interesting and transformative relationships, because they, in a very literal sense, provide you with a perspective that you would never get otherwise. They would introduce you to people and ideas that you would never get otherwise. And so if you actually take the time to invest in that relationship building, it's possible it might not go anywhere or, you know, quote unquote, turn into something. It's also possible that it might transform things in ways that are entirely unpredictable and could be quite exciting. How do you meet people like that? I mean, kind of by definition, we're all living in our own echo chambers. It's hard to break out of our orbit. 
It's true. There's a few strategies that can be helpful. I mean, one is I'm, of course, a, a big fan of so-called ideas conferences, which often bring really diverse groups of people together. So like a Renaissance weekend, a TED, a TEDx, for instance, which might be more accessible because many of those are free in local communities. I think those are often great venues. Another place that I think can be helpful as well is alumni groups, because you all have something in common, which is you went to the same school, but you know, there's what, like 30 majors, 50 majors at that school. And so it's entirely plausible that you might end up meeting somebody who is, a, you know, a geophysicist at that party, or they're a, you know, an, an anthropologist, or they're a comedian or, or whatever, but they happen to go to your school. So that would give you an excuse to meet that person. Another possibility as well, is that some of us have friends that specifically are really into being a connector. And so if you happen to be lucky enough to have a friend like that, you could actually go to them and be like, hey, I want to meet like really crazy people, <laughs> like not literally <laughs> crazy, but people who are in like very different, different fields, like the most, you know, sort of far flung that you can imagine, like who can you think of? This is often for somebody who prides themselves on being a connector, this is like a super fun challenge. Like, oh, let me let me get the, cr the crazy <laughs> potpourri. And that can be kind of fun. So you can enlist their help. Oh, so that sounds fantastic. I'm also sort of curious, though, because a lot of what we're talking about assumes a certain level of personal agency and financial security and time. And, you know, we are still living through the middle of a pandemic. And we've been reading a lot about essential workers. And it's just hard to imagine essential workers struggling to get through the day, having the capacity for some of this, what we've been talking about for the last hour or so. Do you have any thoughts on how people that are trapped in a different kind of life that doesn't afford some of these things, how they, how they can also find maybe some small amounts of time to, to take a longer term point of view? Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, your, your point is well taken. The thing about the pandemic is that we're, of course, all dealing with the same situation, but it impacted people in vastly different ways. There's a term in sociology that I like called the Matthew effect, which is basically like whatever you have already, you're going to get way more of. And whatever you don't have, well, guess what? You're going to have even less of that. And so, you know, for people who, who had families, it's like, oh, you like family? Hmm, we're going to shove it down your throat. <laughs> you can never escape. <laughs> and then meanwhile, you have a situation like me, like I live in New York with my cats. And basically the first like year of COVID, I'm like, Hi, will you hang out with me? No. <laughs> will you hang out with me? No. <laughs> it's like I'm just taking walks for five hours a day by myself. So, you know, I had plenty of time for Zoom calls. This was not a problem. We were all over-indexing and under-indexing on certain things in different ways. So it might seem, you know, for somebody who is, you know, dealing with whatever homeschooling issues, or, you know, if they work at a hospital or something like that, they've got their own deal, their own thing. I would say that all of this advice, I think is good advice, but it may not be possible for you right now. Different things are possible. You know, if somebody was on a podcast and they're like, what you really need is to spend time with your loved ones. I'd be like, well, great. Let's let's see if we can actually get someone to like come to my freaking apartment. Let's start there. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's so similarly, I, I think what we need to do in order to be gentle and be generous with ourselves is to understand that we have to extend out our timeline. 
this is not all about things. Oh, you should really do this this week, or you should really do this this month. You know, we should be thinking about this over a period of years, because unfortunately, that is what COVID has turned into for us. So again, if we go back to the concept of thinking in waves, you might be in a place where, you know, like spending time building your network, like that seems like the most preposterous thing you've ever heard of right now. That's legit. There's plenty of people who don't have time for that. Also, that doesn't mean that that's like some kind of a free pass to never in your whole life build your network. What it is, is to say that might not be possible right now. And the minute it is possible, I'm going to over-index on that because clearly you have been spending way too much time doing certain things over the pandemic and there's certain things that have gotten neglected. And what we need to have is essentially a portfolio rebalancing. So the people who did not have enough social contact, well, guess what? They need to have more of that. The people who had, you know, too much family, well, okay, let's throttle that down. Let's, you know, get the kids out of the house. Oh, good. Summer camp. Great. Let's get rid of them. You know, time to do some other things and that will balance it out. But we have to be generous with ourselves in understanding that not everything is going to be possible right away, but almost anything is possible over the long term. So I love that. It's sort of uh, just holding clearly in your head the moment that you're in and accepting the limitations, opportunities, and circumstances that you find yourself in a moment, but then also knowing that that moment's going to shift and that everything's kind of temporary. Yes. Yes, that's right. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about time and sort of these longer stretches of time. I don't know how long ago it was for you, but I want you to try to imagine yourself as a 25-year-old. I want you to try to bring 25-year-old Dory into the front of your head and really imagine her. And then I want you to imagine that you today are sitting down and hanging out with her. And instead of you giving advice to your younger self, I'm interested in a little bit of reverse mentoring here. What would 25-year-old Dory say to Dory today? Oh, well, you know, I think <laughs> I think mostly 25-year-old Dory would be like, wait, why aren't you married? <laughs> like, what went wrong there? <laughs> I, I thought I thought for sure I was on the cusp of that, but uh, but that that did not that did not happen. I think professionally, I've done pretty well since then, so I'd probably be reasonably happy with how things ended up. When I was literally twenty five, I was working on a presidential campaign right around then, and that was a very exciting time, but a very, I'll call it physiologically miserable time for me because I had so much stress and I was getting so little sleep. I mean, it was ridiculous. Like I had this chest cold for seven weeks, all because I didn't have time to go to the doctor and get antibiotics. Like, I mean, it's so ridiculous, especially in this COVID situation, but like for seven weeks, literally I'm like hacking in the office because I can't <laughs> go to the doctor. And, you know, so I think for whatever stresses I've had over the past few months around my book launch, including, you know, eye twitching and whatever, I mean, all these little things, I think actually <laughs> I'm, I'm nonetheless better off than I was then. And I have more control over my life. So I would probably feel, feel good about that. So that's how you would evaluate yourself. Is there any advice? I mean, you must talk to students all the time. They must, do they ever give you interesting advice about things that you should be thinking about differently now or things you should be learning about or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, actually also around the time I was 25, you know, you do, you do certainly pick up things. I was kind of an early adopter of Facebook because I was teaching college students at Emerson. And so as soon as Facebook 
got out of Harvard and then out of the Ivy League, it went to schools in Boston relatively soon. You know, it's interesting, I mean, with all the pitfalls of of Facebook now and the fact that like, you know, it seems to be the kind of thing that college students couldn't care less about. At the time, college students were very excited about Facebook and they were, you know, they like really, really wanted to get their professors on it. They thought it was so cool. They were like the big evangelists. So yes, definitely there's a lot of stuff around that. But yeah, so hard to say. I'm sure I would have advice because I was much more, you know, sort of judgy, I think, when I was 25 than I am now, <laughs> but I'm not sure exactly what. That's an interesting lens through which to judge or, or to think about advice. <laughs> Where can people learn more about you and your book? If folks want to learn more about uh, my stuff, especially the new book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, they can check it out and actually get a free resource. There's a free long game strategic thinking self-assessment that helps people think through how to become more of a long-term thinker in your own life and your own career. And folks can get that for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Fantastic. Thanks, Dory. It's great to chat with you. Thank you, guys. Aaron, Bob, so we just wrapped with Dory. What did you think, Aaron? What were your first impressions? You know, there's, I really enjoyed the book. There were a lot of things that hit home for me. In the book, she talks about success always taking longer than we want. And Bob, you kind of pointed out at the end there that understanding where you are in your life, what moment you're at, that it's going to change, is a critical piece. Because sometimes we get frustrated by we don't have enough time, we don't have the network that we want, we don't have the opportunities we want. Things aren't working out. Maybe there's a lot of rejection. And just recognizing that it's a moment. There's another thing kind of related that she talked about, which is we need more at-bats, which if you're not a baseball fan or a resident of the United States, you might not understand the reference. The more chances you have to hit the ball, the more opportunity you have. That's something that really resonates with me. Just more chances, taking more chances and, you know, not getting frustrated along the way with rejection. Yeah. Bob, what about you? A couple of things that really struck me, and I I mentioned it in the conversation with her, was that long-term thinking is not what we're wired to do. You know, it's a learned skill. And I think you have to go out of your way to consciously, proactively learn about it and figure out how to do it and how to get good at it for yourself. Again, she mentioned at the beginning of the conversation about how that long-term thinking is not something nature has set up the species to do. Nature does not reward long-term thinking in the ancestral environment. Long-term thinking is something that's come about because of modern society. And so you're having to go against your sort of base human nature to figure out how to do long-term thinking. And then I also liked how she talked about how we're conditioned for permission. And I don't know if that's part of the human animal and how we're wired socially, or if it's part of just the society we live in, but it doesn't really matter. We all are conditioned to ask permission and how much that gets in the way of being proactive and taking control of your own life and realizing that you're responsible for it. And I look back on my own career, or I look back at the people that I'm working with now, and it does seem that we often kind of sit around and wait for the company to tell us what to do. We're like waiting for, like we keep thinking somebody else has the answer. And it's a significant pivot 
but a really rewarding one once you can get to the other side and say, no, no, I'm, I'm accountable for this. This is my career. This is my life. What do I want out of this? And then to have some strategies and practical ways of then going and making that manifest. And Meredith, you pointed out that that's very much what Bill Burnett's book, Designing Your Life, that's very much what that's about. In our interview with Judy Wirt, she also had a nice way of thinking about the arc of somebody's career and recognizing those different seasons. I loved one of Dory's quotes about long-term thinking, which is she she was really hesitant to put an actual time frame on it. When we pressed her on that, you know, are we talking days, weeks, months, years, decades? I mean, she's sort of was comfortable moving between all those different time frames. But the statement she came back to was this idea of, you know, what can I do today that's going to make tomorrow better for the future me? I think that's the piece that I've personally tried to get accustomed to and that I wish more people thought about. Like, there is going to be a future you, and that future you's coming tomorrow, next year, a decade from now. What can you do today to help that person out? You know, <laughs> if you want to be altruistic, Try to help out your future self. That's a good person to try to help out. Yeah. I think the one thing that I really took away from speaking with Dory and reading her books, I took a lot of things away, but the one thing that really resonates is how precious our time is. And I know that we talk about this over and over again. And I think her just kind of, I don't know, putting together some sort of framework about just even visualizing the calendar and looking what's on your calendar versus having a to-do list because to-do lists grow, right? But your time is finite. And so it's how do you allocate your time for the things that are important or are going to make impact or are going to benefit you or maybe help somebody else out. And I think that kind of drives into the next part, which is the hell yeah or no mentality. I think a lot of us get really excited about something and then we're like, oh wait, I just overcommitted or oh wait, I don't really want to do that or oh, like that involves X, Y, and Z. And so I think taking the time to sit back and absorb and really listen to what the offerings are for you and what you say yes and what you say no to are just so important. And Aaron, I see you nodding your head, so I'm sure you've got some input on yeah, that too. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a long history of just not really calculating the opportunity costs of my yeses. And my wife has pointed that out to me a few times where, you know, like I get excited and I want to say yes. And I also don't want to let people down. And what Dory said of like fear of missing out Definitely have felt that a lot. And then find myself in a hotel in a strange city where I don't really know anyone and my kids are back home with my wife doing something fun or they need me and I'm not there. So just like stopping for a moment before saying yes and calculating what are the opportunity costs? Okay, so this would actually take me X amount of time to do. Is there anything else you'd rather be doing? Do you need more time with your family? Do you have another professional pursuit or maybe a personal pursuit? And I found myself doing this actually this week where there was an opportunity where someone wanted me to do something for them. And I stopped to think like, gosh, that would take me about four or five hours. I'd rather play piano for four or five hours and I'd get a lot more value from that experience. So I probably should say no. Yeah, I think the other thing is networking. That really resonated with me. I think it's something that both of you do really well. But not not on purpose. This is the thing that's, that's interesting. It's like I connected with her, and I think that some listeners might see those passages about networking and think it's very 
calculated and like I'm trying to get something out of it. There's a quote in there in the book. She says, having a tiny network will be a roadblock mm-hmm. at some point. And it is true. And I've seen that with friends and, and former colleagues where at a certain point, like they just don't have the connections that they need to you know, make the next move to the next role or something like that. I've never really done it as a, I'm trying to get something out of it. But Right, me neither. Early in my career, I was teaching at an art college and I was broke and just, you know, I didn't have a ton of opportunity or, or resources. But I would invite people that I admired who were doing really great things in their careers to come speak for 30 minutes in my class. And we would do it by Skype because that was the, the technology that was popular at the time. And they would almost always say yes, because it's for students. And that was an opportunity for me to learn. And then I had, they knew me. I had a connection there. It's not like I was trying to then later get a job with them, but it was an easy way for me to build my network and provide value for my students. So I think it's something we can do with some creative thinking. And Dory talks a lot about that in her book. Well, I think it's shifting them. She does talk about people think that networking is dirty. And even the word that you used there when you said it wasn't calculated, people might think this was calculated. And calculated implies a certain transactional nature to the relationship. And does and when you say calculated, it does seem a little dirty. I think the trick with networking is how can you just say, no, I want to have these relationships in my life because they're mutually beneficial. And that's a very different model than, oh, I'm going to talk to this person because I expect to get something out of it. And so, yeah, again, that, that switching from the transactional model of networking to a relationship model of networking and not, not really knowing where it's going to lead in the long term. I think that's kind of the beauty of it, though, right? It doesn't have to lead anywhere or it can lead somewhere. Yeah. I'm curious what the two of you thought about what Dory had to say about manager time versus maker time and how that works in, in your careers. I mean, it reminded me a lot about the interview we did with John Zaratsky, when John Zaratsky talks about his admin days, right? Where it's like a specific day where he is like, this is what I need to do. I need to go grocery shopping. I need to pay the bills. I need to do X, Y, and Z. And so for me, that really resonated from what John had to say. I think it's easier said than done. And for me, I kind of get thrown back between managing and making. You know, it's kind of like a little bit of whiplash. And so for me, it just made me start thinking I need to be much more deliberate and self-conscious of what I'm scheduling, when I'm scheduling it, and with who so I can make the most out of it versus just doing things to do things to get them done and check them off a list, so to speak. Bob, what about you? Well, I definitely struggle with that because just the position I'm in at this point in my career, I have a lot of people depending on me and I'm trying to calculate and coordinate with a lot of other schedules. So it's not like I can just declare, oh, this is my maker time and that's that. You know, I'm having to respond to a lot of things. But I also know that like this is a stage of my life. Let's imagine you get 10 decades. It's imagine you live to be 100 just as a round number. So you're going to get 10 decades. Three to four of those are going to be your career. What are you going to do with the rest of them? And so partly I kind of look at my struggle to control my time as a temporary issue. It relates to what Catherine May talks about in wintering, in that there's going to be times in your life when life is going to make demands of you, and you have to be responsive to those. But it doesn't mean that you won't get through that and that there won't be other moments when you are much more in charge of your own circumstances and can engage in these more strategic, long-term, thoughtful ways of managing your needs and your time. I want to close out the episode with a quote from Dory's book that really resonated for me. 
It's so easy to forget what we've accomplished. And when we do, we lose sight of the powerful fact that we've done it before and we'll do it again. With effort and enough of a horizon, almost anything is possible. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.